If you're new with us today, welcome. Uh, my name's Kevin. I didn't say that earlier. I'm your lead pastor, and this morning I'll be your chief offender. And so, uh, if you're new, we're walking through the book of James, a series entitled, A Practical Guide for an Impractical Life. That's what we've been looking at. And so, really, it's, it's, it's a book about what faith in Christ truly looks, out, looks like in the highways and the byways of our life. What does it actually look like at work? To have a faith, what does it actually look like at school, in your marriage, in your parenting, in our neighborhoods? And really, that's why this book has been so offensive, is because someone else is telling us how to live. And we don't like that. We go, I, I, I know how. I know me. You deal with you. I know me. And James like, I don't think you do. Like, I really don't think you do. And so before we get started, though, I want to I ask a question. And I want to go, how many show of you in here? How many of you in here have ever been to a wedding? <laughs> good. Okay, good. So that's most people. That's kind of the normal assumption. And, and weddings are such amazing things. You, you love the celebration. You love the tradition. You love the, the, the history. And you stand there and you watch this, this young couple on a platform somewhere or up front. And, and you can see the love in their eyes. And you can see it's just saturated in hope. And they're on the platform and they're making these covenants, these promises to one another. Things like, till death, do us part. It's really a beautiful thing. And it's beautiful enough and moving enough that if adultery ever enters the picture, it feels so wrong. It feels so ugly. It's why when we see it, we go, that's not right. Because the question we always have when adultery rears its ugly head in a marriage, we say things like, what happened? What happened? How does someone go from so much hope, so much love, so much joy, so much anticipation to a place of so much hurt and so much pain? And I want to start this journey that we're going to go on this morning in a very, very awkward passage. We're going to look at several awkward passages. And so we're actually going to start out here. So turn with me in your Bibles. If you have your Bibles with you, I hope you do. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 7. If you're new to your Bible, really easy. Open it up in the middle. If you hit the middle, you're basically at Proverbs. It's right there. It's Psalm or Proverbs is what, is what you're going to hit. Proverbs 7. And what Proverbs 7, it's going to introduce sort of where we're going this morning, and that's why it's awkward. It's really an old gentleman's perspective on what he's seeing. And believe it or not, it will have a connection to James here in just a moment. And here's what it says, starting in verse 6. You ready? Okay, me neither. Two of us. Okay, so <laughs> we're ready. Okay, verse 6, Proverbs 7, verse 6 is what it says. At the window of my house... I looked down through the lattice. I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who had no sense. That's a nice way to put it, isn't it? A youth who has no sense. It says, he was going down the street near her corner. And we don't know who she is yet. It says, he's walking along in the direction of her house at twilight. Not the movies, not walking home. And he's doing it, it says, as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in, then out came a woman to meet him dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. 
She is unruly and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. And that phrase, at every corner she lurks, it begins to give us the snapshot that this he, this she is not an actual person. So the she is not an actual person. Verse 13, she took hold of him and kissed him with a brazen face. She said, today I fulfilled my vows and I have food for my fellowship offering at home. So I came out to meet you. I looked for you and I have found you. I have covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. And some of you are starting to blush. But secretly, it sounds exciting, doesn't it? Verse 19, my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money and will not be home till full moon. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once, he promised her, all at once, he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter. Meaning, it promises everything and delivers nothing. It promises excitement. It promises exhilaration, something kind of naughty, something kind of thrilling, something different. And what does it give him, though? It gives him death. And some of you are like, what is happening at my church on New Year's Eve? How, what are, can he say that on the stage? You know, but hold on, because there's an interesting connection between what you just read and James chapter 4. So start navigating over to the book of James, James chapter 4. Because James, in James chapter 4, he's writing a letter to a group of people. And what you're going to hear him say in James chapter 4, he's going to call this group of people spiritual adulterers. That's nice, right? That's really hard to hear. That he's going to call them that. And so what, what we have to do is back up a second and go, wow, that's, that's a big statement. And so we've got to start with an important theological point that needs to be made right here if we're going to understand why he's calling these people this. Because salvation is what's called punctiliar. That's an actual word. Salvation is punctiliar. It means point in time. Salvation is a point in time, which means if you've placed your faith in the finished work of Christ, then there was a transaction that occurred at that time. That means there was an imputation that occurred theologically. And some of you are like, why are we talking about that? Because it's kind of a small deal, isn't it? Well, it's kind of a small fact, but it has massive implications. It means that your sin was imputed to Christ, and Christ's righteousness was imputed to your account. So your sin went on his books, and his righteousness went on your books. And that's a huge deal. And, and so what that means is you weren't born a Christian. That's a lie, by the way. If someone says, well, I was born a Christian. No, that's not what the Bible teaches on any page. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And at that point, when you placed your faith in Christ, salvation became yours. That free gift, freely offered, but this free gift came at an incredibly high price to him. Didn't cost you anything. It was incredible, 
costly to him. And then in that moment when that transaction occurred, you were justified, meaning you were declared righteous. You and I are not righteous. We have been declared righteous. That's different. That's what justified means. The satisfaction of the wrath of God wasn't poured out on me. It was poured out on him. And all of that happened when you and I placed our faith in Jesus. And that's not really the hard part. The hard part now comes with James' whole point of the book. He says, okay, you've had this experience. This transaction has happened. You've been justified. But the hard part is living like you've had that experience. That's the hard part. The hard part is sanctification because I know I'm a moral meltdown. And I know what he did on that cross saved me. And I receive that, and I believe that, and I rest in that. But now after that, can I live faithful to the one to whom I'm now betrothed? That's the question. Can I now live faithful to the one to whom I'm betrothed? Paul put it this way to the church in Corinth. He writes in 2 Corinthians, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So how did the serpent deceive Eve? He said, shift from obedience to God, Eve, because God is holding out on you. He said, Eve, you need to choose preference, choose feelings over the divinely revealed truth. And Eve, begin to doubt God. Begin to reinterpret his word so that it fits your feelings, so that it fits your desires. Make it fit and therefore disobey God. Begin to disregard God because he doesn't really matter that much, does he? Let the wisdom of the world come out, be lived out through you. And you think, doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that not sound like our culture today? Because this isn't a new concept. And Paul says, I'm afraid that you will be led away, led astray. So Paul's concern and James' concern are the same thing. This process of sanctification is a street fight, and the difficulty is most Christians today aren't even fighting it. They're not fighting it at all. The process of sanctification demands a response. So when you, when you put your faith in Christ, you do not become a Christian. I know that sounds weird. Some of you are like, what? When you put your faith in Christ, you do not become a Christian. You become a follower of Christ. And you're like, well, hold on a second. Which means we are ambassadors of Christ. We are God's epistle written in human hands. Here we are. And that either affirms the glory of Christ or that shames hypocritically the name of Jesus. So the choice is ours. The title, Christian, comes after the evidence of the following. Does that make sense? You get the title if you follow. I can't just tell you I play for the Lakers when I don't. You, you need to see me on TV. I'm friends with LeBron James. I, I have the uniform. I, I'm paid like that. Whatever. I would look like that. But if I, if I don't, I, I don't get to just say that. The title Christian comes with the evidence of following. 
That's what James is sort of pushing on here. There seems to be a group of people here who claim to be Christians, but allow sin to dwell in them like it's their pet. And they keep feeding it. And they keep pretending like it's no big deal. And James is saying that is a problem in his day. And I begin to wonder, is that a problem in our day as well? But look at verse 1. Verse 1, it says there's a battle being fought. That's what it says. There's a battle being fought. The problem is we're losing. Okay? Verse 1 says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Anybody in here fight? In quarrel. Yeah, that's called the holidays for some of you, right? <laughs> you, the people you fight and quarrel with are sitting right next to you right now or left yesterday, and your family's like, yes, right? So what are the, what, what are the fights and quarrels? Any arguments, any hostilities? The answer, according to the text, is don't they come from your desires that battle within you? He just blamed you. You're like, I hate this book. <laughs> really, the meaning is your passions are at war within you. Your passions. The problem is not the world. The problem is not the internet. The problem is not the half-naked person that walks in front of you. It's, it's not, the problem is not your childhood. It's not your parents. It's not your kids. It's not the politicians. And it's not the news channels we watch. The problem is that you're a sinner and your passions like mine are very much alive if I allow them to be. Because what most fights are in the house, if, if I look, I'm selfish. I know I'm selfish. I run headlong into selfishness. Because I want to, my way, should we just sing that together, right? Is that how it is? There's songs about it. And do you remember James chapter 1, verse 13? James chapter 1, verse 13 is arguably the most offensive and difficult, I, I would say, maybe convicting verse in, in the Bible. It says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by what? Their own evil desire. By our own lust. Ouch. I thought, wow. Like, have you ever thought, why do we sin? You ever thought about that? You know why we sin? We sin because we like it. That's why we sin. We don't, we don't sin because we have to. We don't have to. He has set you free. You don't sin because the devil made you do it. No, the devil didn't make you do it. We don't sin because God made us do it. We sin because we allow the sinful nature to raise its ugly head and we defy the word of God and the wisdom of the world comes through in us. And so James says, the source of quarrels and the source of fighting among you, this problem, is, is a battle because of the indulgence of your passions. They are at war within you. It takes two people to fight. And you're engaged in right on with it. Here's the difficult thing, at least I think, about coming to Christ. Think about it. Before you came to Christ, I think life choices were easy. Be why? Because you could do whatever you want. You could do whatever you want. No rules. Disney says follow your heart. Just kind of, you do you, do what feels good, it didn't matter. You know what it basically said is, don't get arrested, but do what feels good. Re I mean, really, that's called the college years for lots of people. Like, don't get arrested, but, but do what, what, what feels good. And we kind of take that into our adult life as well. But what I 
What I think is, when I came to Christ, all of the sudden, I'm convicted, and that old life doesn't taste as good. And I'm convicted, and that old life, it doesn't, it doesn't feel as good. The experiences aren't quite the same, but I run back there, don't I? Because I want that experience again, but it doesn't feel the same. And what's interesting to me is I found myself stuck between two worlds, one foot here and one foot here, where you know what the Bible says, but this old life, it was fun, and you indulge, but it doesn't satisfy. So you're kind of too much of the world to love God, but too much of God to love the world. You're a tweener. You're a spiritual tweener, and that is a terrible, terrible place to be. One foot in God, one foot in the world, and you're living there. Think boat and dock, if you've ever done that. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, this isn't good. You know, this isn't good. You're a spiritual tweener. It's awful. So when we give our life to Christ, Romans chapter 6 and 7 says that we are dead to the mastery of sin. When you've placed your faith in Christ, we have a kingdom transfer. We used to be a slave to sin, but now we're a slave to righteousness. He has set you free from its mastery so that you can now pursue righteousness. You don't have to live the old life. But here's what's interesting and where I get irritated. The old life never gets deleted, does it? Like when I get to heaven, I want to ask God, like, why do you just don't delete that old life? Like I used to really want that stuff and just run headlong into that stuff. But now I'm a new creation. Why not just click delete? And that bothers me. Because I wish he would delete it. Why? Because it still speaks my name. That's why I want it deleted. And it knows what I like, and that's the struggle. The problem is I'm freed from the mastery of sin, but I have to pursue Jesus. And if I don't pursue Jesus, the natural pull of entropy is towards what's comfortable. And you know what's comfortable? That old life. Because I know it. And I did it really, really well. For a long time. And so I'm, I, I look at it and I go, it's just easier. I know it better. I know how to do that. But back in the book of James, check out verse 2. James writes, you desire, but do not have. So you kill. So the world and the flesh are in agreement. And they say that you need one thing. The world and the flesh in your life says you need one thing. And you need one thing only. You know what it is? More. That's what you need. You need more. That's what the world tells you. You need more. Whatever it is, you need more stuff. You need more likes. You need more money. You need more hours. You need more jobs. You need more sex. You need more experiences. You need more, 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 more. Do you realize you can watch TV in every seven minutes? A whole industry breaks to tell you what you need. And you should be so unhappy that you don't have it. A scheduled break every seven minutes to sow discontentment. You need this sports drink to be more. You need this car, this beer, this house, these new clothes, these new technologies, all this. And then you will be the best you possible until the next thing that comes out. And, of course, you need that too. And James says it raises up in you this discontentment. And the interesting thing is the bottom of verse 2, he says, look, you covet, 
but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And then he says, you do not have because you do not ask God. Lots of people know the last section of that, right? We do not have because we don't ask God. That's the verse we have memorized. We don't have anything else memorized. We have that. But you realize some of the, the, the greatest heresy in the church comes from passages like this, taken out of context. Because there are pastors that would suggest to you that if you place your faith in Jesus, that you're going to have an increase in your finances. And that you're going to get a newer car than what you have right now because God loves you. And he doesn't want you driving around that beater you're driving now. So there's a new car coming your way. God wants you to have a nice ride, and God is more glorified with a third car in the garage. And so you need to pray for that. Because if God loves you, and if you're living by faith, you'll have it. You just name it and claim it. That's ridiculous. That is heresy. Like, I don't know, read the book of Job. Read anything written by Jesus. I don't know, open your Bible anywhere. And that's not a biblical concept on any page. That's not the gospel, nor what this means. So what's James talking about? You don't have because you don't ask, because, you know, I ask for a lot. What he's saying is, you don't have a heart for the things of God. Oh, you're asking. I know you're asking. You don't have a heart that wants greater passion for what God wants in your life. You, don't, you pray about stuff. You just don't pray about that stuff. You pray about these other things. So James says, hey, look, pray for this. Verse 3, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Oh, Lord, give me the winning lottery ticket. And I'll give 10% to the church. So the other 90% sits right here. I mean, I know how we pray. I need the newest phone. We pray for all sorts of stuff. He says, the problem is you think tangible and he wants you to pray eternal. You pray tangible, and he's like, could we ever just for a second pray eternal? James is saying, I'm missing out on some of the best things that God has to offer because I'm so focused on the tangible things that I never get around to asking for the eternal things. And so he's saying, ask, but ask with right motives. Think about why you're asking. You know what the greatest thing in your prayer life that will change your prayer life? Guaranteed this will change your prayer life. At the end of every prayer you pray, at any meal, add so that and finish the phrase. And it'll expose whether that's selfish or eternal. Seriously. Oh God, bless this food to our bodies. So that what? So that what? Oh God, would you heal such and such? Would you do this so that, is there anything about his glory? Anything about his fame? Add two words so that it'll change your prayer life. Because what happens is what we need to pray for is a heart that breaks like his and a mind that thinks like his. That's what we need to be praying for. Maybe I've said this before and I'm wrong. If I said, I've said this before, God's not into your checkbook, by the way. Just, if I told you he is, he's not. He's not into your calendar. You know what he's into? Your heart. Because your checkbook and your heart, your, your checkbook follows your heart. Your calendar follows your heart. He wants your heart. That other stuff will follow. He always wants our hearts. Because those things follow it. 
Which is why he says in verse 4, you adulterous people. That's a great thing to hear on New Year's Eve, right? Going into the new year. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? So apparently those two things are mutually exclusive because treasure follows heart. So where your heart is, you're going to find that what, what, what you value. Or put the other way, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So he's like, quit, quit storing up that other stuff and start seeking and praying about uh, things that, that, that I am about. Pursue me. He says, you spiritual adulterers, you're living with a divided heart. You have proclaimed faith in Christ, and yet you're living in disregard to what he says. He says, you have too much of the world to love God and too much of God to love the world. It's time, he says, to choose this day whom you will serve because you can't serve both. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. And if we haven't been offensive enough with the passages we've looked at, and all the parents are really glad that I'm showing their teenagers where the Bible says awkward things, here's another one. <laughs> Psalm 106 says, Thus they begin, thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. I read that and I thought, wow, really? Can I say that? Like, are you allowed to write that in the Bible? Because that's really offensive. I don't like the way that makes me feel. And I thought, that's exactly right. Why is it that I feel so awkward about that word being said in that passage, but I don't feel that way about my sin? I get really offended, maybe, that, that's, that that verse is read on a platform. It's true, by the way, but why is it I'm so shocked by that, but I'm not shocked at the, at the sin that I feed in my life? Why the disconnect? See, we've become, in a sense, so paranoid of sounding judgmental or so obsessed with fitting in that we have lost our distinctiveness. We've lost our salt and light. We've tolerated sin and we've become some kind of odd bedfellows with so many cultural issues. And we've just said to one another, that's no big deal. Don't judge me. It's just a little bit. No, God's word didn't really say that. It's just not that important. And so we've become people with divided hearts. And the back half of verse 4 is just as bad because he goes on. He says, therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So the word friendship has this idea of reciprocated affection. And so actually, I think the teenagers understand this better than sometimes we do as adults. Because what it is, is this is not a one-way crush, this friendship with the world. What it means is I'm into you, and then you're like, oh, you're into me? Oh. So then I'm now I'm more into you. And now you're more into me. And that makes me even more into you. And now you're more into me. That's what, what, what we do with the world, right? We do the same thing with the world. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of into you. That's kind of good. And then they're kind of into me. And you're like, oh, that's nice. And then you're like, oh, so now you're a little more into the world. And then it's a little more into you. And then you're, now you're a lot more into the world. And it's a lot more into you. That's what he's saying here. That's what he's sort of pushing on. He's saying that's the kind of friendship with the world that he's talking about. See, we start saying things in Christian circles like, hey, we need to, uh, as, as, as Christians, we need to be all things to all people. That's what we say, right? Because we want to reach everybody. We've got to be all things to all people. And so, yeah, we look at someone and say, you're engaged and, and you move in with your fiancé? That's totally normal. 
No, it's not. That's totally sin. That's not normal. That's totally sin. But, but you know, my son actually had someone say this to them in premarital counseling. There are two Christians who are getting married, and he's doing their premarital counseling. And they say, well, you know, we're engaged, but we're basically married in the sight of God, and so we can have sex, right? Because that's okay. And he's like, no, that's called, according to Jesus, fornication. That's a sin. That's not normal. That's not okay. See, we tolerate these things without towing the line on what the Bible says. And James says, look, this friendship that you have with the world makes you at enmity with God. It makes you an enemy of God. And God loves you. God deeply loves you. Scripture is going to tell you he is jealous for you. That's verse 5. He says, or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us? Do you know that? He is jealous for you. He's jealous for you. Show of hands. How many people in the room are married? Perfect. Okay. For those of you who are married, here's what I want you to do. I want you to actually conjure up a picture in your mind right now for a second of your spouse in the arms of another person. Anybody getting fired up? <laughs> Anybody getting mad at all? Anybody seeing red? Can you still hear my voice? Because some of you are like, I'm going to have to kill him. Right? And they're like, wait, I didn't even do anything wrong. I don't care. He said picture it. I pictured it. You're dead. You know? And you're going to get in trouble for whoever they pictured too. But we have this inside of you, and it just raises up. When you start picturing that, it raises up almost an unhealthy anger in us, doesn't it? And you're like, I'm going to kill him. That's unhealthy, by the way. Um, and, and do you realize that God feels similar things without the sin when we play the harlot with other gods? Whether it's people, your kids, your job, money, fame, sexuality, or whatever, when that becomes the focus of my life, we are playing the spiritual whore with God. And God feels what we would feel. He is jealous, verse 5, for us. And he says in verse 6, he says, but he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So he opposes the proud as they're seeking to satisfy their own lusts, but God gives grace. He comes alongside the humble. He strongly supports those whose hearts are completely his. That's what the Bible says. He strongly supports those, the humble, who allow God's will to be played out in their life, who put God first. He gives the grace, grace to withstand the onslaught of the world. Humble people receive grace from the Almighty to withstand the onslaught of the world. That's what he's saying. But the question really becomes, Kevin, now that you've made me feel terrible about myself going into the new year, how do I do this? Like, what do I do? Because I, some of you are like, yeah, it's New Year's resolution time. Like, I'm sick and tired of this. I hate this sin that's in my life. I don't want, it's time, Kevin, I'm ready. So how do I do it? Because if you're finding yourself continually indulging in the sin, how do we begin to move away from it? How do we begin, begin to pursue Christ? Because the only thing worse than being there is staying there. Agreed? 
The only thing worse than being there is staying there. And here's what's what's cool. In verses 7 through 10, James is going to give you 10 things. He's going to give you 10 solutions, and he's going to do it rapid fire. It's like shooting you with a BB gun, just over and over again. And, and, And I love that. But just so that you know going into this, in the original language, these are imperative commands, which means they're not suggestions. Okay, so he's not saying, hey, what do you think? Hey, let's vote. Anybody not like the way this makes you feel? That's not what he's saying here. He's saying, he's not asking if it makes you, you, you feel pretty or happy or feel good about yourself. What he's doing, maybe this is just me. I said this first service and they looked at me a little weird. I have a son and sometimes sons don't listen. I know that's shocking. And when they don't listen, what dads want to do, maybe moms too, they want to grab the shoulders and they want to shake some sense into them and tell them something very, very, listen to me. You know, that's what you want. That's sort of what he's going to do right here. That's, that's sort of what he's, he's after here. He's like, I'm not messing around. This is crazy important stuff. Verse 7, here's your first thing he says. First thing he says, submit to God. That's a fun word, submit. That's an off-limit word in our culture right now. Because he says you cannot serve God and you cannot serve yourself at the same time. But what's interesting is so many people have no idea what God's word says, so they have no idea how to submit because they don't know what God even wants. And, And why do we not know? Because we are passionately and intentionally committing ourselves to other things and we're fitting God's word and, 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 and we're fitting God, actually, into leftover time. And so we don't know what it says, so we can't live it. So here's what I mean. Here's an example. This is one example. There's lots of different examples, but I'll, I'll, I'll give one here. We say to people, hey, I'm a Christian, okay? And we head out with our non-Christian friends to have a cocktail or four. And, and we say to ourselves, that's no big deal. It is a big deal. Because the best thing you can do is either quit drinking or quit calling yourself a Christian because what happens is it's not the one cocktail. It's the four or five Appletini chasers that follow that first cocktail and you're with your friends and they think Jesus is a joke because you're drunk and you're talking just like them and acting the fool just like them. That's what happens. So then why would they come to church? Why would they listen to anything about Christ? Why would they come to your small group? Why listen? Because y'all are basically the same thing other than where you spend one hour on a Sunday morning. You're basically the same. James says, it's time. Submit to God. Second one, he says, resist the devil. Just in case you were wondering, spiritual warfare is real, right? Okay, I need a better answer. Spiritual warfare is real, right? Good, good. I need you to know that. That's a real thing. So I don't think we have to be overly caught up in that, but there is a battle going on for you every day. That there are heavenly creatures who are being slaughtered in a battle over you. Like, I don't know if you know that. If, I, I probably should teach on that sometime and walk us, us through a series so that you understand how that works. But there is a spiritual battle going on. First Peter writes, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And we always think the someone is someone else. Oh no, it's you. He's looking for you. 
And so the Bible says he's loose. You want to resist the devil? This isn't brain surgery, by the way. Pray that God would bind him. How about that? How about we pray that God would bind that which is loose? What I mean by that is pray that God would bind him in every area of your life. He would bind his influence. He would bind his mouth. He would bind him in your kid's life, in your spouse's life, in your friend's life, and so on. In any area you struggle with, acknowledge that the devil might be messing with you and pray that God would bind him up. I mean, that's, that's not that hard. And what's the other way to resist him? The third thing it says in James there, it says draw near to God. It means just learn to sink deeply into Christ. Abide with Christ. People are like, Kev, this is James. I need some practical understanding of what this means. Okay, I'll give you three practical ways to abide in Christ. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. Grab a couple people, get together every day, or get together once a week, but read it every day. Saturate your life with the Word of God. We have, do you realize we have tons of 400 people in this church are reading their Bible together every day? 400 people. People just like you. That's drawing near. And if you go, oh, I need a Bible because all I have is that old school big one that opens up that has weird words in it and big pictures, I'll give you one. And if you're too proud to take one, I'll give you an Amazon link to a couple good ones that you can buy. And you're like, well, you know what? I don't know how to say the names. I don't either. Just play the audio Bible and he'll read it for you and that's how you say them. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know the locations. Fine, we'll get there. Just, just, or I've got questions and I would go, join the club. Okay, because every day I read, I'm like, yeah, I don't like that. I don't understand that. I'm not sure what that means. That's why we read together. Get some people to hold you accountable. Start reading and just keep reading. Why? Because what you're doing is you're sinking God's word into your heart and the Bible begins to change the way you think. That's what happens. Ask any of the 400 people here and they'll say, boy, I used to think this and now I don't. (laughs) Because I've saturated my life with this. And some of you are like, well, Kev, that's too much reading my Bible every day. I would say, fine, learn to pray. Well, I don't have time to pray. Here's the deal. Pray in your car. Now, some of us who are older like me, we grew up when there was no Bluetooth in the car. So if we were praying in our car, it looked like we were kind of crazy and talking to ourselves. And all the cars driving by were like, yeah, steer clear of them. You know, right? But now, everybody's talking on the phone in the car. You can pray, hey, God, to go to work today. Hey, God, as I take the kids, you can pray out loud and no one thinks you're weird at all. If you want to get better at praying, pray out loud. And where are you alone? Maybe in the shower or or in your car. Just pray. And if that's too hard, what if you learn to worship? Here's what I mean by learn to worship. Don't just sing the words, feel the words. Maybe stop for a second and pray those words back. Like feel the music. Maybe get crazy and either kneel or raise your hand. Here's the thing about people who raise their hands, just so you know. Some of you don't want to raise your hand. This was me, too, for a long time. You don't want to raise your hand in worship because you think people are going to look at you and, and think you're weird. There are not that many people interested in you. I mean, I don't know how to be nice about it. There, there's not, you are not the center of this church's world, okay? So if you raise your hand, no one's like, what are they doing weirdo over there? Don't sit by them. We're changing sections, honey. no. No one's looking at you that way. They're, they're hopefully worshiping too. 
if they're judging the hand raisers, there's another issue that they, they need to go back to step one, you know, maybe. So what if we began to, to let my body mimic my heart? The king of the universe is for you. So why not listen to worship music at home or in the car or as a family or at work and allow it just to kind of settle into your life? And what's interesting now that those three will help you maybe take a step in abiding in Christ, he gives some other examples here of how to do this. And he's, he uses in this next section some Old Testament imagery that might get lost on us if we're not careful. So the back half of verse 8 talks of cleansing your hands and purifying your heart. It's like when your mom says, wash your hands before dinner. Sort of the thing here. The priest, before they would go in and minister before the Lord, they would clean up. They would wash their hands. They would get into a pool of water, something called a mikvah. It's basically a, a large cow tank, if that's not heretical, but it's just a tub of water, like a baptismal tank. And they would kind of clean up because they had to be cleansed because they would purify not just their hands, they would purify their whole bodies. And the concept here is to recognize that God is holy, and because God is holy, he cannot fellowship with sin. Ever felt like you pray and there's nobody listening? Ever feel like you pray and it's bouncing off the ceiling? I can tell you almost always why that happens. I'll give an example from your life. Maybe this is my family and maybe this is Confession Sunday, but maybe your son sneaks out the window and goes and hangs out at midnight all night and you find out from the police where he's been and he walks in at 3 a.m. in the morning and he wants to talk about what's for breakfast and I want to talk about why you're climbing out the window and why the police are at the door at 3 in the morning but he wants to talk about breakfast and waffles and eggs but I want to talk about what is actually happening the same thing goes on in our lives when we pray there's a good chance you're hiding something and he already knows it yeah, you want to talk about this stuff over here and your kids and all? That's great, but can we talk about the fact that you just snuck out the spiritual window? Can we talk about this real issue over here, which you don't want to talk about, but I don't want to talk to you unless we're going to talk about this, because this is the real problem. That's why there's, why not, the concept he's getting at is confession. That's what he's getting at. Because when my son rolls in and he's not repentant at all, I'm going to talk at him longer until I realize, oh, you are repentant. You do understand what you did was wrong, and maybe we can make some other choices next time. And so what's happening here is this idea of confession, of repenting. Because if we're honest, we always think our sin is no big deal, don't we? Everybody else's sin a big deal. My sin, not so big a deal. You know what's true about your sin? Your sin will cost you more than you want to pay. You, your sin will take you further than you want to go. And your sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. That's your sin. That's my sin. But it's no big deal, Kevin. Oh, no. It's going to cost you more than you want to pay. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And it'll take you further than you want to go. And Satan just whispers in your ear, it's no big deal. And what James is saying is, grow up, church. If you've been in church for a minute, 
It's time to, to get serious about my faith. It's to become spiritually faithful to the one whom I'm betrothed to. Try offending your wife, guys, and then never talking about that issue ever again. Does that go well? Yeah. I'm betrothed to one who wants to talk about some things. It's time to be about the journey of becoming holy as he's holy. And holiness is a dirty word today. Verse 10 is the final command. Verse 10. Oh, actually, I'm going to jump back up to verse 9. I skipped that. He crams, he rapid fires uh, some at us. He says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. So does that mean I have to walk around somber all the time? No, the point is, he's saying, why doesn't your sin ever grieve you anymore? Because like when we started this journey off, right, when you first become a Christian, we look at the big sins in our life, big sins like, oh, pornography, let's get that out. You know, anger, drunkenness, whatever, these big rocks. And then after you get the big rocks out, you look back at your life and you're like, where'd all those rocks come from? There's a bunch of other rocks here. And you start picking those out. When did our sins stop grieving us and we start calling sins little sins and big sins? Because the wages of sin, not big sins, the wages of sin is death. Holiness matters. Holiness matters. Verse 10 has the final command. Verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So it sort of ends where it all started. He's talked about humility several times. Do you notice it says humble yourself? Anyone ever been humbled by the Lord? Yeah, that stings a bit, doesn't it? When you're humbled by the Lord, you, this is how you know if you've ever been humbled by the Lord. It leaves a mark. It leaves a mark. You know. Here it says, humble yourself. Why? Because his point is, Every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess. It's either going to be done in praise or judgment. So you should kind of get with the program, because humility matters. You're going to be humbled. Every knee is bowing, so humble yourself. First Peter puts it this way. He says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. He who humbles himself will be exalted at just the right time. And so you're going, Kevin, what's the point of the section? Here it is. This whole premise is that we have got to begin to humble ourselves. Because when I humble myself, I begin to say, maybe I don't know all that I think I know. And what I begin to do is I begin to allow God's word to saturate my life and it roots up things that I don't like that are in my life. And I identify those things and I submit those things to God. God, is this a big deal? And he says, uh-huh. And I surrender that and I confess that to him and, and I repent of that. And so when I repent of that and I say, God, this is a big deal. So God, I'm sorry, I don't want to do that anymore. Now I'm going to start doing this. And I tell him who I was, but that's not who I'm going to stay. God, I, I, God, God, I want to pursue you like this. And so I begin to pursue Christ and I enter into the battle of sanctification. And when I enter into the battle, you know what happens? You rinse and repeat. Because all he does is goes, oh, you're in it for real? Okay, well, let's deal with this issue. And you're like, <laughs> I don't like that issue. That's my wife's issue, not my issue. And you begin to identify it and you begin to walk through this. And you know what happens? We begin to look like Christ, 
each and every day. Can you imagine what happened in this city if a bunch of ragtag misfit toys like us ever decided to get serious about holiness and do this? Could you imagine what would happen in our church? Can you imagine what happened in our marriages, in our parenting, in our workplaces? If we began to really look like Christ, could you imagine what happened? This city would go nuts. Maybe we'd get persecuted. Some of you are like, no. I'm like, no, that's a good thing generally in Scripture. Because it means you look different. You're living different. You're prioritizing different. What if we became a group of authentic, devoted, faithful men, women, and children who pursued Jesus with all that we are? I think that would change everything. How impractical is that? 